Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 134 from March 6th, 2008. Listener feedback number 36. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now, and uh, it feels like more than a week since we've done the show, and actually it is, because Steve and I pre-recorded our last episode. I was about to go up to Canada, and now we have a lot of catching up to do. Hello, Steve Gibson. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you. Security guru extraordinaire. Well, it was a busy, busy, busy uh, week and a half, I guess it's been. Um, it's funny, you know, this is a Q&A episode, and I, I literally had a difficult time sorting through the the all of the feedback that we've received from listeners because of something major that happened that 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 bears directly on the recent topics of whole drive encryption you know bizarrely enough um some guys at princeton did some research that that were were they they really this is an issue that's been known for a long time but never really received any focus they did some some quantification of a of a weird phenomenon with dynamic ram where they learned and and showed exactly how long data will persist in dynamic ram after it's been turned off the presumption was you know milliseconds well it right. turns out well no it's more like seconds and these guys did a ton of work to 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 demonstrate how for example whole drive encryption keys could be recovered from RAM before it had had a chance to decay far enough. And, I mean, they've done some really clever things that I'm going to talk about in, I mean, extensively. We're going to give it a a whole episode of its own. And there are other things that have all sort of happened all at the same time because it turns out that Firewire represents a vulnerability and and then USB dongles could be used to recapture RAM that is hasn't been zeroed from, for, for example, after a cold boot. So, so we are all excited about the fact that we found this great full disk encryption and it all fall apart, fell apart two days after we recorded the show. Well, now, just, okay, because I want to give this whole treatment, uh, we're not going to be able to get to it for a couple of weeks because we, next week we've got the founder of Iron Key is going to be our guest on the show to talk about Iron Key and their hardware encryption stuff. Right. We've got, we got today's Q&A, and we have a Q&A after that, so it won't be till the episode after that. So we want to address one- this at all? Well, there's just no need to. I mean, I want to give it – there's so, there's so much to talk about. I don't want to give it – partial treatment but what i did want to say was for anyone who's worried the bottom line is if you wait 10 seconds you're fine 
That so, is so it, shut down it, and wait ten seconds exactly before you walk said, well, off. Well, maybe twenty to be really safe. Okay. Now, I mean, the fact is, it's it would be very difficult for someone to to probably grab your laptop away from you and and employ some sort of a hijack of the RAM without you knowing it. But and so 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 my point is the the length of time we're talking about data staying in RAM, it was believed to be insignificant. It turns out, well, it can be significant, especially if you spray it with Freon, which can then actually cause the RAM to to the, the data in the RAM to last a lot longer. Anyway, I wanted to let all of our listeners know that I was well aware of this. We know. Please, <laughs> Stop emailing. <laughs> please. When I, when I updated my Security Now mailbag, there were 745 pieces of mail. Most of them were about this. Right. So, well, first of all, we, rec- we, we uh, welcome you know, people letting us know about this stuff. And, yes. I sh- and really, the fault is mine. I'm going to take full responsibility because uh, we, we had to pre-record that show because uh, of my, uh, my monthly trip to Vancouver and so, uh, as a result, we did a show on TrueCrypt full drive encryption several days after that news came out. And people thought, oh, well, they obviously hadn't paid attention. So, yeah. it's just because we had a pre-recorded. And <laughs> that's not going to happen again. You know, I, I've rearranged my schedule. I'm not going to be making those trips to Vancouver. So, I will be able to make sure that we do this stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the day or the day before usually we uh, air it. So, it's not going to be out of date. And so, yeah, that's, that'll help. Yep, that'll be neat. Also, I wanted to mention that uh, many people have subscribed to the change detection service. Um, I've got a button on the at the on the Security Now page, and there's there's one at the bottom of GRC's homepage, and something like eight thousand people have subscribed over the years. And every time I make a change to Security Now's page, I I oh, I, 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 I deliberately. Um, send out an update, and the same thing is true with our web page. Well, the change detection people upgraded their oh. system oh. and broke broke the ability for me to say to their bot, do not look at this page except where I tell you to, mm-hmm. because all of GRC's pages have stuff that's changing all of them on them, like, like, like you know, download counts and paint, uh, you know, how many um, – uh, days since the, the page was last updated. And so it's I've deliberately over time constrained the change detection bot so that it only launches when I tell it it's okay to send the following message. Well, they broke that. And so for, I don't know, for weeks, people they, like these 85 Hundred people were all getting mail saying, "Oh, this page has changed. This page has changed." When when it hadn't, so I wanted to let everyone know. I wanted to apologize uh-huh. for that. It was it's out of my control because there was no way I had right. of telling their bot not to not to do the pages. I finally, oh, and it was impossible to get a hold of them. I had to track them down by their DNS registration, and then then sent email that had a long response cycle finally i got somebody and then i and then it wasn't until i showed him a, a snapshot of all the mail they were sent <laughs> they were sending out oh, because dear. i was getting a response from their bot saying hey we just notified 8500 people of the change in your page it's like Argh. yeah so they finally fixed it <clears throat> also our feedback form broke 
Um, normally, when you submit feedback, I, I, you know, and and you say, okay, here's my my note to Steve about security now, and you press the button to send it. It says, thank you for your feedbacks. It's been sent to Steve. You know, end of story. Well. What happened was when I made some site-wide changes to add the GRC menuing that we talked about um, last time, I broke inadvertently that page. So people were concerned that maybe their feedback hadn't been received, so they would hit the back button and send it again, hit the back button and send it again. So I got lots of copies of everyone's feedback. That's The moment I saw that that problem was happening, I fixed it, and so that's fixed also. Sounds like and it was I a did, perfect storm of a week. It was, it was quite crazy. Yeah. Also, I did want to mention that the, the, the script-free menuing is up, up on the site, and we've got a search feature, site-wide search, courtesy of Google. Um, and also, if you get a search that is too wide, there's a link at the top that allows you to narrow it down to just security now. So there's some nice security now oriented search that will allow people to find past episodes based on the transcripts that Elaine is doing. Yeah, great. That's that's very handy. And then my last note is that there was uh, three critical security vulnerabilities in the Opera browser that were recently addressed. Um, my copy doesn't notice and look for updates by itself. I had to tell it to look for updates. Um, I, I, I caught the little security blurb go by. So I just wanted Opera users to know that, that they do want to do a little manual check for updates because there were a couple important changes that, that were made. So they'll want to uh, update Opera. Okay, very good. Before we go uh, any farther, I have some great questions to ask you. And uh, I'm sure there's more to talk about. But uh, I do want to mention our good friends at Audible.com because they provide the wherewithal to make this show and many of our shows possible. And that's going to be even more important than ever as we start moving into a new realm. And I'll talk about that a little bit. Maybe not today, but uh, down the road. We, uh, we're doing more video and we hope to even do video versions of this show at some point, as well as audio. Don't worry. We're not going to leave that behind. But the uh, sponsorships and your donations become more important as we get uh, as we move in that direction. So. Thank you, Audible, for uh, making it possible. You know about Audible, I hope. We've certainly talked about it enough. Audible.com is a great place to get audio books, not just books, audio content of all kinds. Uh, They have all sorts of great books, 45,000 titles. They also have radio shows, podcasts, uh, short shows, unusual shows. You can uh, special things like election 2008 information, uh, a lot of that. Um, so you can really keep up on what's going on in current events. They even have audiobooks on Espanol. If you're looking for a way to tune your Spanish or you'd prefer to listen in Spanish, they have a huge selection of uh, books in Spanish. You can find a link right on the front page uh, for that. Uh, that's something I think kind of new. I think it's great. I'd love to hear some other languages. It'd be great for me to practice my French by listening to some French books. Uh, a whole bunch of science and technology books as well. If you are looking for something to listen to and You've got podcasts. We, we know. We try to keep you busy with our podcasts. But something a little different, may I recommend audible.com. You get them right away, which is really cool. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com. In fact, if you want, we can give you a coupon toward a free book of your choice. Just go to audible.com slash, I'm sorry, audible podcast. I always get that wrong. You have a unique URL, Steve. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And you could sign up there for a membership in Audible, and you'll get a coupon for a free book. 
And that could be a lot of different, as I said, 45,000 titles. Listen on your computer, on a CD, on a portable player, even on the Amazon Kindle. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Give it a try. I think you'll enjoy it. We thank them for their support. Steve, uh, anything else before we before I read you? We got so many questions for you. I did have one little bit of errata that I wanted to share. Uh, we got a report from one of our listeners, Brian Dent, who reported that he was really glad that TrueCrypt made him produce a emergency rescue CD. Oh yeah. It turns out that. Uh, another Adobe utility, I don't know what it is with Adobe and Track Zero, but um, uh, it turns out that he's he's learned that their AcroTray.exe utility, which is some sort of something that lives down in the tray of Windows, is also writing into Track Zero and wiped out TrueCrypt. Um, he was he rebooted and he typed in his password. Nothing happened. And he said he saw his life pass before his eyes. <laughs> then he re- realized, wait a minute, I've got that CD. So he booted from the CD. It was able to, of course, restore that track uh, and uh, and the boot track. And he was able to get back into Windows. And again, by juggling back and forth a little bit, he figured out what it was that was causing the problem. And so this is two different things now from Adobe relative to, I guess, to Macromedia. Uh, or I think Macromedia was the other one. And so, it, so it's a, something DRM-ish that Adobe is doing yeah, yeah, is yeah. really causing problems. And he did do some browsing around and confirmed that lots of other people are having the same problem with Adobe's software and its collision with, with the TrueCrypt bootloader. Well, so that's too bad. I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew. That's too bad. That's too bad. Yeah, they'll have to fix it. They, I mean, nobody else is doing DRM that way. They certainly don't need to do it that way. They Someone just that, oh, this will be clever. And unfortunately, it's an area that really needs to be reserved for non-OS or pre-OS things and not used by software running in the OS. But that is why they do it there, because then you can't, you know, it's harder for you to hack it, basically. Well, it's really not. Now that you know it's there, I would imagine you could just <laughs> well, copy it to another drive true. and say, oh, look, you yeah. know, it's probably easy to fool a- a- after it's been exposed like this. I think they were thinking, oh, just sort of this will be nobody off the radar. Yeah, nobody will see it there. Yeah. Be, exactly. It's off the radar. Now it's really right in the middle of your radar because it's, you know, it's keeping your system from booting. Yeah. <sighs> Do you have any spin right uh, tales to tell? I have one little short notice. It's it's something that I, we haven't really focused on before. It turns out that most people that who who write testimonials do so because, uh, first of all, they're Security Now listeners, and you know they run they run across some like serious problem with their system. This is actually not from a Security Now listener. Um, I don't have his real name. His handle is M G O M G O. So Magoo, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at, anyway, so he said, uh, I haven't used Spinrite very often, parens every couple of years or so, but one of my important USB drives got really goofy on me last night. None of the usual fixes worked, not even the XP repair utility on the install CD. Hmm. So I finally remembered Spinrite. And in three hours, a completely unreachable USB drive was restored to happiness. Just thought you would appreciate a positive feedback note. Always. So here's someone who doesn't know we get positive feedback <laughs> notes pretty much all the time from our security well, analysts. Don't say that. We welcome them. It's always good to get them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Someone, uh, someone wrote 
the other day, well, I know you must get tired of these. And I'm thinking, no, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. I never get Say tired more. of hearing <laughs> news of Spinrite saving somebody. I love that. Yeah. Well, that's very nice. And, of course, if you want to get a copy of Spinrite, it's easy enough. You just go to Steve's site, grc.com. It is really the best uh, hard drive maintenance and uh, and often recovery utility. We, not always. It depends what's wrong with the hard drive. If it's a file system error, it's not going to fix that. But if it's a hard drive error, it will. More than anything else I know. Are you ready for Q&A? Let's plow in, Leo. Mr. G. This is from uh, Keon, I guess. Age 19. He's at Monroe College in Bronx, in the Bronx. He writes, Steve, I'm majoring in information technology. I'm a new <laughs> listener. <laughs> no, he doesn't talk like that. <laughs> I'm a new listener to the Security Now podcast. Welcome, Keon. Must say it's very interesting. You made me encrypt my, you made me, you made me encrypt my whole hard disk. With TrueCrypt, but one important question, even though a user may have encrypted his or her hard disk with TrueCrypt, can't the password still be retrieved if the user uses Rainbow Tables or the Loft Crack Live CD? Question mark. Thank you. Now, you know, we explain what these are. Yep. We've never talked about Rainbow Tables. Um, they, it, it, it's, it's even funny, the heritage of the name Rainbow Tables, uh, it comes from one of the early, very popular... Um, DRM, you know, anti-piracy um, dongles that was from a company called Rainbow. Oh, a- and and Rainbow Tables. So anyway, that that's the name that the, that these tables got. They are nothing, however, other than um, pre-computation hash tables. Right. That that is to say, the idea being that you could take you could take all kinds of common dictionary-based words, we've talked about how hashing works, how hashing is a one-way function, and oftentimes, for example, a, pa- a passphrase will be, will, will be hashed in order to turn it into a fixed-length blob, which, for example, might be used as a key for symmetric encryption or for some other purpose. And so the idea being is hashing takes time. It takes time to to put something from a dictionary through the hashing algorithm in order to get the hashed output. So so since many different programs, for example, might use in the old days, for example, an MD5 hash, you could pre-compute the hashes and and that's what rainbow tables are. Rainbow tables are all kinds of phrases and dictionary words and combinations of words that have that have painfully in terms of compute time been hashed once but rather than do redoing all that work when you want to crack somebody's password if you knew for example that the password was going to be run through an md5 based on the os for example it might be you know a a version of linux or unix where where they use an md5 hash for the person's passwords instead you, you would you would somebody some like bunch of people would do all this work finding out determining the md5 hashes for a huge number of common phrases and passwords and they'd save them so the result is these rainbow tables and then it's much faster to simply run through the table trying 
all of those at very high speed, you no longer need to do the hashing of of each of these things because they've already been hashed. So this essentially, it's they they are pre-hashing a large number of possible common um, passwords and phrases. Well, so to so that so that's what rainbow tables are. Um, to answer his question, it is it's certainly the case that pre-computation attacks like this are possible but that they they only work if you have if you're starting off with a bad password so if you've got you know if you've used scott for example as as your passphrase well that's very bad because it's going to be in a dictionary it's going to likely be in a pre-computation table and so sure it would certainly be possible for a system if you had a very very weak passphrase and somebody ha- uh, specifically modeled the true crypt um technique for going from your passphrase through through the the building of the decryption key for your drive then yes um potentially it would be Better to do that than it would be to to manually put in every possible phrase. So again, the the takeaway is you absolutely want to have a non-guessable passphrase, which is not going to be in a dictionary. You know, something that looks really random. Come up with some algorithm for. For, for, for typing on the keyboard, skewing the letters, scrambling things, add in some noise characters, you know, all the things we've talked about in the very, very early episodes of Security Now for how to get good passwords. If you use good passwords, then you're not going to be subject to any kind of a pre-computation hash attack because yours won't be in that table of, of possible hashes. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, as far as, uh, loft crack, that's, that's just a brute force crack, right? Uh, exactly. And so that's same, same, same issue. Exactly. Same, same, same issue is the idea being that, that you, you don't want whatever, you don't want your passphrase to be in anybody else's dictionary or, or crack library in right. any way. But if, so just, but if it's a totally random password, the likelihood, and with enough characters, the likelihood of them getting it by a brute force is, shrinks to nothing. Well, yeah, exactly, because they're, they're inherently going to try more likely right. passphrases, right. And, and, you know, yours just won't be among them. Yeah. There you go, Keon. Thanks for uh, writing, and welcome to the show. We hope you'll listen from now on to every episode. Benton Green of Austin, Texas, wonders about data recovery on encrypted drives. Hi, Steve. I was listening to Security Now 132. Heard you talking about how Spinrite doesn't care if a drive is encrypted or not, since it only looks at the bits and whether or not it can read them. It doesn't try to make sense of them or its file structure. That got me thinking. I remember you talking about how Spinrite will read the data off a bad sector, write it to a good sector, but if the drive is encrypted... Everything on the drive is pseudo-random noise, so how does Spinrite know not to write over any pseudo-random noise it might find in a good sector? This was a great point because it, it highlights some confusion about the, the way drives handle bad sectors and also how it is that data recovery can still function even on an encrypted drive. I mean, you know, if a lot of people are going to be encrypting their laptops and, for example, they were 
able to successfully use Spinrite in the past to, to get them out of a jam, they'd like to know that, that Spinrite or appropriate data recovery technology um, could still be used. So, so back in the old days of the FAT file system and where, when I first wrote Spinrite, it was aware of the file system structure and operation and it had to be because spinwright needed to manually spare out sectors and move clusters around um, as it was moving valuable data out of out of regions that it had found to be detective i mean sorry de- defective so so in those days, drives were not dealing with their own defective sectors. They were relying on the, the operating system and the file system to mark clusters bad, saying this is a region where it is not safe to save data. When drives became intelligent, that all changed. Drives then became responsible for the, the, the data stored in their own sectors and and responsible for for relocating those sectors themselves so what what spinrite developed into was technology which would work with the drive to show it that the show the drive that it had a problem that relieved spinrite of the responsibility of understanding the file system and made Spinrite file system independent, which is the way it's able to work on Macs or TiVos or, you know, unformatted drives even, you know, just just anything or drives that have been completely encrypted. So again, Spinrite doesn't need to understand what is there. It's able to show the drive, hey, I've got a sector that I've managed to recover the data from. Give me somewhere safe to put it. And the drive will will then perform that relocation underneath, uh, sort of underneath the 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 level where the operating system and Spinrite interact with the drive. Essentially, sectors are all numbered. They're numbered, you know, zero through some really big number with lots of digits, you know, and that's how many gigabytes of of data you've got and so literally sector number 32627 for example um will go bad well what happens is the drive takes that physical sector three that it was 32627 and makes it inaccessible and it takes a spare sector that it has and numbers it and literally gives it the same number 32627 and then spinrite puts the data back from the recovered sector that it's been holding in RAM into this new sector, which has the same number, but is but but now but is a physically different sector. So essentially, the operating system doesn't know anything happened yet. The data was recovered from a bad sector, put into a good sector, and that sector's number is the same. So the operating system uh. accesses it just like it was the bad sector, although now it's good. Interesting. Interesting. So, really, it's the fi- the file system keeps track of this stuff, not Spinrite. Sp- well, Spinrite doesn't, and the file system no longer needs to because the drive keeps track. Oh, the of drive, it. Uh, I see, at the lower yeah. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Underneath all of this, the drive. But there is says, a file system, isn't there? I mean, even when you're encrypted, there has to, or I mean, doesn't there has to be a file system to know where the file is? 
Sure, but but that but that's on the other side of the encryption that's decryption. Encrypted. So that's that's garbage data as well. It, exactly. And so invisible. so yeah. all all the drive. I mean, you know, the drive doesn't care what you store in its sectors, and now neither does Spinrite. Right. So Spinrite works with the drive. Neither Spinrite nor the drive care about the the specific data you're, you're you're storing because because working together, they're able to to make sure that whatever it is you store is stored correctly, regardless of what it is, whether it's pseudo random noise or you know normal non encrypted file system data. That's actually quite clever. It's very cool. So does it do that even on unencrypted drives? I guess it would. Yep, it does yeah. them on all drives. That's how drives work. Yep. It's good to have Steve around because he understands how drive works, drives work in ways that I think most people do not. I mean, you have to, to work, to use, to do spin, right? To write it. Yeah. yeah. Ryan listening in Florida was thinking about latent unencrypted data. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I like the phrase. Steve, after hearing your review and your concerns with full drive encryption, I've been wondering something. You mentioned before that even if a hard drive is zeroed out, depending on how many times a sector is written to, it will still contains bits from previous data. Please forgive me if I misunderstood what you were saying, but if this were the case, couldn't the original unencrypted data still be read from a drive even if the drive was fully encrypted? Would the best possible scenario be DBA-ing, I'm sorry, D-banning the drive? That's that program we recommend, Derek's boot and nuke. Right. For a clean install of the system, then immediately encrypt the drive before any sensitive data is put in the drive. That's a very good point. Just want to confirm my suspicions and inform your listeners of potential security risks involved even when using full drive encryption. We sort of touched on this during our discussion of full drive encryption, but it's a very good point, as you mentioned, Leo, and I wanted to sort of highlight it. And that is that, you know, we've talked about secure deletion of data from drives. That is to say that if you simply write zeros over a data sector, when you when you read that data back, you are certainly going to get zeros. I mean, that's how drives work. They're going to give you back what you let what you last wrote. But in fact, when you write zeros, it's it's an additive process. That is, you you're you're adding magnetic flux reversals on top of the ones that were there before. You are you're doing it strongly. That is, you are you're suppressing the prior ones, but you're not completely eliminating all of their influence. So there is a sort of a latent image of the data that was stored before underneath what you've just written. Now, it's very weak. And it's it's you know it's weak enough that it won't confuse the drive when the drive reads that data back. It'll read back zeros if that's what you wrote. But if you had very sensitive equipment, and this this definitely exists, such sensitive equipment exists, and that equipment, for example, read all the, read read back that you had zeros, and then it said, okay, I I know that we've that he's written zeros, so I'm going to subtract the zeros out of the actual magnetic flux data that's there, what that would do is that would have the effect of subtracting out what had most recently been written, leaving behind what was there before. So it's literally a way of like peeling a layer of, of, of history 
off of the hard drive, allowing you to get to what's what was there before, which means if you simply ran one encryption pass over your drive, you are writing you're you're tur- you're turning every sector that of unencrypted data into pseudo random noise as we know and writing it right back on top. But that latent unencrypted data is still there. So it's exactly like we were talking about um, the, the the problem of um, of securely erasing a drive. In order to securely erase a drive, the best way to securely erase a drive is to record multiple passes of really, truly random data. Well, we know how virtually impossible, not not completely impossible, but really hard it is for computers to create truly random data. But so so really good pseudo random data is good enough. The point is you want to there are, for example, there are secure erasure programs which write well-known patterns on the drive. Well, that's not what you want, because if the well-known pattern is written then somebody who's trying to peel these layers off to get back into the history of what was written, if they know what those well-known patterns are, they know what to successively subtract from the existing data in order to peel back each layer. So what you really want, the optimal erasure, is just several erasures, several overwrites with pseudo-random data. That way, they don't know what they're peeling off layer by layer because it was just pseudo-random. So, so and, and, and the, the state-of-the-art secure erasing utilities do typically now have a pseudo-random option. And a few passes of that is, is absolutely all you need. But we did also mention, and here would be like the ultimate solution, and that is get a brand new drive that has none of your data on it. TrueCrypt it first, then do all your work. That is to say, you know, you have to have Windows on it. So, so you 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 would you take a brand new drive, you would install Windows, then before doing anything to it, before customizing it, putting any data on it at all, give it full drive encryption. That way, everything you ever store of yours is always encrypted by full drive encryption and it never exists on the drive in unencrypted form. So let me just ask you this is actually a a topic that goes beyond full whole drive encryption but the issue of fully securely erasing a drive. And um let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, if you obviously the the chance of recovering it if you do it a few passes is going going to get tougher and tougher. Yes, it's, it's essentially what happens is you are you're pushing the the signal into the noise you are you know there is a signal and there's noise you know the so-called signal to noise ratio so every time you're writing on top of it you are you're you're obscuring the signal pushing it into the noise and at some point after a couple passes there's just no way that you that anybody no matter how sensitive their equipment is is going to be able to find a signal that is several rights in you know several rights in in into history they're just it, the, the at that point um the the actual physics 
of of the signal being recovered from the drive will prevent you from finding the signal amid amid the noise. Right. Now, practically speaking, who has machinery that even can read it if it's written overwritten once? Oh, and we're we're not talking some guy in his garage. We're at we're we're at the NSA sort but of. But you're level. sure such a thing exists? Oh, absolutely! It absolutely does. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, it sounds like science fiction, but it's you know nobody would have believed a couple of weeks ago that you could turn a computer True. off and, <laughs> and 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 capture True. its RAM a half right. an hour later right. if you quickly froze the the memory chips. Right. So yes, I mean this kind of stuff it absolutely does exist. How many passes do you think you need to do to make it uh, make it impractical to do this? With pseudo random data, three or four would would absolutely be enough. Not ones I mean, and zeros, but pseudo random data. Yes, you absolutely need a pattern that is not known by the people who are trying ah, to recover. Because if they know it's a one, they can they then can subtract that one. They could subtract that one exactly. Oh, interesting. So you need to cover if you, one pass with pseudo random data would that be enough? Yeah, it's enough for me. I mean, It'd maybe be pretty two. hard to. Do, I mean, one pass even since you don't know what's been written over there. It'd be pretty hard to reconstruct that, I would Correct. think. Correct. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it, well, okay. Th- think about it this way. If you, if you did two passes, you, you always know what was last written. Right. Because that's, that, that I mean, that's oh, screaming okay. at you. One, zero, oh, because it says one, that. The zero, file zero. system tells it. That's right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's the data that's that retrievable. the sector has. Right, right, right. So, two so passes that, is what you need then. Yes. I, and, and I mean, there are people that have like do 30. It's like, okay, well, how much time do you have? You know, you, you could throw the drive away and go to fries in, in yeah. the time. I mean, in fact, you could earn enough money to buy a new drive in the time it would take to do that 30 times. What so, I am surprised is to see the number of uh, supposed drive shredders that do ones and zeros. That seems yes. to be the most common. Yes, it is. It is a misnomer that writing known patterns is useful. It's absolutely not what you want to write. You want to write noise because no one then will know what it is they're trying to subtract after a couple layers. Now, I'm looking at uh, Apple's secure erase options. They have zero, zero out data, which writes zeros over the data once. Not good enough. Not, not good enough. They do have a seven-pass erase using DOD 5220-22M. It erases the information and writes over the data seven times. doesn't say what it writes it with, but it's going to take seven times longer. And then there is a 35... There is a 35-pass erase. I know. <laughs> I don't know why it would include that. That's interesting. It doesn't specify random, but I'm figuring if you're going to write, you might as well write random if you understand what you're doing. Right. Which I didn't, but now I do. Thanks to you, as usual, we've learned something today. Matt, tuning in from Melbourne, Australia, has connectivity troubles. I'm sorry, Matt. I have a Netgear wireless router, WPN824 Range Max, that I'm now using with a hardwired Ethernet connection to my PC. That's a terrible accent. I apologize. Also with a wireless connection to our other home PC. My whole LAN was wireless until I got fed up with having to reboot repair the connection due to signal loss, or what I thought was signal loss. I installed the Ethernet connection. It's amazing. All the questioners actually sound like me, don't they? I installed the Ethernet connection to my PC and left the other PC to continue using the wireless connection on the router. However, even now, with a direct wired link to my router, my connection's having the same continuous issues. I get these kinds of questions on the radio show all the time. I'm so glad you're getting them. What can I do since I download approximately 50 gigabytes a month? What's he doing? 
Uh-huh. I, <laughs> I, I think like, his ISP's got his, I his think number, so. too. I need a reliable connection that won't keep dropping out, etc. Is it dropping out, or may I have the setting wrong somewhere? Also, how can I give my connection to the router priority over the wireless connection without interrupting performance for either one? Okay, there are a couple things going on. First of all, um, if Matt is downloading from Melbourne uh, 50 gigs a month, That's a lot. It, may, it may very well be that his appetite for downloads has come to the attention of his ISP. Uh, we do know that ISPs are now doing so-called bandwidth throttling, um, you know, not being net neutral and have the ability to interrupt connections. So we know that's going on. We don't know that that's what's happening for, for Matt. He's having this problem over his non-wireless connection, that is over his physical electrically wired ethernet connection now i have seen that some switches and routers are more finicky about the quality of the cable that is being used and you know most people are now running at at, at 100 meg if not a gig between their equipment um the the equipment on each end has to be a gig so you'd have to have a have to have a gig ethernet um, adapter, but for example, most laptops, new laptops now have it because it's like, oh yeah, well, why not? Um, you know, this is a phenomenal amount of signal to squeeze over a, um, you know, a, a cable that's you know wandering around the living room and looping around the dining room table a few times and and going, Lord knows, you know, probably uh, runs behind the toaster on on the kitchen sink. I mean, it's amazing this works at all. So. I would absolutely pay attention to the quality of the cable and the connections. The 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 Ethernet connection, um, the the um, the RJ45 connector was beautifully designed with gold contacts. It was designed so that as you plug it in, it is creating it, it's it's creating a a wiping contact in order to continually sort of self clean hmm. and get any oxide off of the wires that may be there. But, you know, I know that I've solved problems sometimes just by jiggling it in and out a little bit to sort of, you know, rewipe the contacts. So that's worth doing. Now, many people also have problems with wireless disconnections. And it turns out that's very it, common. Yes. It turns out, believe it or not, that this is by design and it's Microsoft's fault. Oh, great. Uh, now, the, I, I just empirically, I have this experience because whenever we do skype with people on wireless i ask them to go wired because of dropouts yes usually uh, brief but but nevertheless apparent well and believe it or not even deliberate what what happens is microsoft came up with this wonderful technology in xp called wireless zero configuration oh, yeah and what it literally does is it deliberately disconnects you mm-hmm periodically in order to see if it can find a better access point for you to be connected to. Now, I call knows, that I call that promiscuous. Who knows what they were thinking? Um, you know, the 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 common wisdom is that that they were thinking, well, people are just web surfing. And so, you're, you know, you right. click a link and you get some stuff and then you read the page and you click a link. And right. so they really won't even notice if we just disconnect them. And it's and true, as long you as don't. 
as long as we reconnect them quickly yeah, enough. That's true. The, pr- the problem is that many people are not in that model anymore. Many people, like you were just saying, Leo, have a, you know, create static connections mm-hmm. for instant messaging or Skype or, you know, or, you know, remote uh, re- you know, like remotely connecting through uh, across a VPN to, to some other system. I mean, the model for many people, especially as ubiquitous as Wi-Fi has become, no longer tolerates brief disconnections. Right. So I made, in response to this, the first update to Wismo in uh, six years. Oh, that's great. It's uh, there, Wismo has a new command yeah. called... WANLOCK. Ah. So you say WISMO space WANLOCK, and following the WISMO model of creating a shortcut, basically it allows you to put a little shortcut on your desktop or down in, in your quick launch tray, where after you've got a connection that you like, you just click that, and it stops the wireless zero configuration service. Wow. It turns out that just stopping the service stops this from happening and you no longer you lose your wireless connection. I do recommend people just d- disable that service because there's no real reason for it. Well, as long as you don't need it in order to get your connection going initially. Right. So, so what the, I also have WAN open, which does the reverse of WAN lock. Um, and so that just starts the service up again in case somebody needed it. Now, normally the service is set for auto start. So it'll automatically start when you boot. So the idea would be you boot up and, you know, get connected. Then you can just do the little Wismo WAN lock. Or, I mean, you don't have to do that. If you don't want to use Wismo, just stop the wireless zero configuration service. You could also open a DOS prompt and type net space stop space WZCSVC and hit enter. That'll do the same thing. But that's all I did is it's a little WAN lock just stops the wireless zero configuration service. And I think you'll find, given that you've got a strong enough signal, that these dropouts go away. Didn't we also um, talk about a fix that Microsoft pushed but never told, actually didn't push, released but never pushed, never told anybody about, that improves wireless zero config or fixes these problems? Uh, I know that we did. And, and I don't I'm know if not it fixes this problem. Sure. I'm not sure now what it was that it was doing. The problem is some people who are network savvy believe they're making things better or that is more secure by by turning off their access points SSID broadcast. Yeah, right. That's another problem is it's better to have that on. For one thing, it provides you no security. Right. Remember, it's in in every packet. Yes, it's actually it, transmitted. It, <laughs> so. Yes, it's got to be. It's in. It's in the packet. Anybody sniffing anyway can see what your network SSID is. Right. The and only it slows thing that, things down considerably because your your yep. system's going. Who are you? What What are you doing here? Yep, it ends up being a bad thing for yeah. Wi-Fi performance. So you know, I, I have a friend who, as sort of tongue in cheek, he changed it to something like you know NORAD Central Command or something. <laughs> Like so, so, and he's, he actually lives not far from a from a from from a major military base, oh and so you can imagine people, you know, who like networks, you know, networks within range comes up and it says NORAD Central Command. Oh, it's like, oh crap, I'm not, I better not touch that oh, one. Or uh, more likely, let's attack. Yeah, let's get in that one. Oh, uh, he funny. he uses a WPA key yeah, from from safe. GRC. So uh, believe me, safe. they're not going to figure safe. that one out. 
Uh, yeah, I, mean, I get calls all the time about connectivity issues, and wireless especially is a constant dropout. Why he would get a wired dropout, I think you're hit the nail on the head. If he's downloading 50 gigs a month, his, his ISP is, is kind of nudging him a little bit. I think they're doing a little throttling. <laughs> do, yep. you really, do you really need all that bandwidth? He's probably doing BitTorrent, and they probably are throttling those. Yep. Derek Marino in San Diego, California, needs his file to be touched. Touch me. Hi, guys. Before going into my issue, let me say I'm looking through the documentation and I haven't found anything to help me yet. Good. We like it when you read the manual first. He says, I've been using TrueCrypt for some time and recently started using Jungle Disk, which we both love. Steve yep. and I use that. I just love it. I'm running into a situation where Jungle Disk is not backing up TrueCrypt archives and would like to run my scenario by you. Let me explain. I have a TrueCrypt archive. Actually, I have a few, but let's just use one for example. Created Jan 1, 2008, given a size of 200 megabytes. So the initial time step says 1108. The file size will not change as I add delete files because of the way TrueCrypt chunks HDD space. It's always a 200 megabit by file. Yeah, right. Um, it, it, it's a container regardless. file. Yeah, it's a container. I've configured my jungle disk auto backup to run periodically, grabbing some specific folders as well as this specific archive file. Jungle disk pulls them all up to S3, no problem. Now, let's say that today, February 25th, or in this case, March 6th, I add or delete or modify some file in the archive through TrueCrypt. When I'm done, I unmount all the TrueCrypt drives, then manually kick off the backup process. Jungle Disk does not see that the archive file has changed, therefore doesn't re-upload it to S3. Looking at the archive through Windows Explorer, I see the initial timestamp hasn't changed from 1108. To me, this is strange. Shouldn't the time stamp or at least the hash of the archive change when I modify the internal content? If it does not change, I'm not sure how to get Jungle Disk to re-upload any thoughts? I don't think it's using date. It's probably using a, a CRC or something. That... Well, that would take a long time to compute. Oh, would it? Oh, okay. Yeah. My guess would be, for example, that it first the, the jungle disk first looks at the date, assuming that that's going to change right. if the file is written to. Right. And then maybe then it does some sort of a hash uh, or has some, some logic for deciding whether the date re- reflects an actual change. I, I sort of smiled because this sounds to me like the true crypt guys doing their job, right. which I think they do very well, of further obs- obscuring right. what's going on. Nothing's They're, changed here. Look yes, away, go somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. I'll bet. I'll bet that they are deliberately keeping the timestamp constant. It's just to say, oh yeah, you know, you've not accessed this strange file. We don't know what this is. It's, it's, you know, it, well, it was created back at the beginning of the year, and no one's done anything with it since. I just think that's very cool, and I would bet that's what they're doing. However, that has a problem, which Derek has discovered, and that is that Jungle Disk, or any, for that matter, any other backup tool, which is based on um, which is using timestamps on files to determine whether they've changed would not see a change, um, which is why I mentioned at the top that his file needs to be touched. Um, many old computer guys may be aware of the touch command, which is uh, probably originally a Unix command, which allows you to, to essentially chain, manually change a file's time and date to the current one. It, it was used um, by developers a lot because... Um, there's a process known as make or uh, that uses a make file, which sort of automatically compiles um, 
changes and sort of build it's, it's used for rebuilding programs sometimes there you have a need for telling something in your system like very much like this to take a look at this file it needs some uh, some attention of some sort it needs to be recompiled or or something where that process may not be automatic so you would have a touch command you would touch the file to to set its time and date to the current one um it turns out that that the unix utilities have been recompiled and ported over to windows and on today's show notes for for this show episode 134 i've got a link to a, a set of open source versions of many of these of the standard unix commands among which is touch it's very small i've got one of them on my machine which i use for various purposes um, so anyway i wanted to aim derek at that link where he could find the touch program to manually tweak his his true crypt archives so the jungle disk would then see them and it looks to me i mean this is a manual process but he's already unmounting his archives and man- manually launching jungle disk so i would imagine that you know adding one little command to a batch file if that's what he's using for for unmounting them it would be trivial and then this would work for him there's another possibility and i'll run it by you um jungle disks backup by default does not backup in use files would it be seen as in use if TrueCrypt had that file open and was saving stuff to it? Um, no, because in, in 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 the in the scenario that Derek mentioned, he is he is unmounting those. Oh, okay. And that would be closing them. There is a switch in Jungle Disk that you could say backup locked or in use or file or you know files that are in use by other applications. So that might be worth a try. But if sure. he's, yeah, if he's unmounting it, I guess it wouldn't be seen as in use. The other thing is, it, you know, there's other programs like RSync that do, in fact, do a checksum. I don't, I don't know what Jungle Disk is doing uh, for its backup, how it's determining it. If it's just looking at the date, yeah, that's obviously what's confusing it. But RSync looks at does a does a rolling checksum. I mean, it actually looks as if, if the file's been changed. Right. So, and that's a that will work with Jungle Disk as well. Moving on, another question. Uh, and for everyone's worth, I think rsync is part of that uh, package also that I mentioned. Well, yeah, oh yeah, rsync is a is a universal Unix yeah uh, program. I just it's odd that um, Jungle Disk on, would only look at the file date. That's not a great way to do that. I guess it's time. It's faster though, isn't it? Yeah. Andrew Dalton, looking somewhere in Connecticut, was wondering. Steve, a question came up amongst my coworkers. I thought you'd be the guy that ultimately could answer the question. We're thinking of using an eraser utility to securely delete sensitive files, overwriting them seven times. A question came up on what kind of threat or vulnerability... This is... We're circling back. What kind of of threat or vulnerability does that protect against? Does an attacker need physical possession of the drive to retrieve files that were deleted by conventional methods? Or could an attacker retrieve these files by hacking in over a network if they could get past the firewall and the security measures? They'd need physical access, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- this was interesting because you know it it puts a nice little bit of frosting on the discussion we were just having. The in order to read the data underneath what's been written before, you need, I mean, serious serious technology. You're you're maybe you could you could use the drive's normal heads with a high precision analog to digital converter to digitize to a much greater degree and with much greater accuracy than the drive normally did 
the analog signal that the drive's heads retrieve, um, but you may it may very well be necessary to take the drive apart and and give the platter you know extra special care in in you know extra kinds of equipment. So the answer is uh, to do anything like this, you know, to to get underneath the data that has been written, that has been overwritten on a drive. I mean, it is way beyond anything you could do at the, at the API. That is the, 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 the electrical interface to the drive. That's always by definition going to just give you what was most recently written to the sector, which of course is the drive's whole point. You, it, it never wants you to see what was there before because it, you know, something was written on top of it, and that's the data that you want to get back when you read it. So, so no way could you e- could you do it with anything other than really fancy equipment, replacing the the the, the probably the little um, motherboard of the drive, or maybe even needing to take the drive physically apart and have access to the platters themselves. So, by no means could it be done remotely or from outside the computer. Let's just say it. Only the NSA could do this. Right. It's it, not something to worry about. If anybody if anybody can, it would be the NSA. And they would have to come to your house, take your computer, take it back to Fort Meade. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. <laughs> well, but I mean, but this is the kind of stuff that was done, for example, after nine eleven, if terrorist hard drives and laptops oh, I were was. found. Right. I yeah. mean, believe me, they were they were gonna find out what was written there. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I mean, uh, how sophisticated are terrorists? Are they smart enough to use encryption unfortunately they're all using it now yeah yep yeah uh rob pontis of toronto ontario in canada of course worries that maybe steve wasn't paying attention steve pay attention i'm trying (laughs) you need another quinti venti latte you've got my attention (laughs) hi steve i listened to your podcast on truecrypt 5 was confused by your finding that system performance was increased You mentioned that you uh, were restoring your system from an image, though. So my question is this. Wouldn't the act of restoring a drive not place the data more closely together than the initially imaged drive? In other words, optimize it, defragment it. Could that account for the performance increase? I was paying attention, uh, and that certainly did occur to me. So I verified that the imaging tool I was using, which was Drive Snapshot, I verified that a restored snapshot was restoring the individual sectors in their highly fragmented, lots of holes and spaces left on the drive position, which in fact it was. So so he, uh, Rob is completely correct. If I did, a, for example, a file-by-file file backup and then did a, a file-by-file file restore, it would just put them all right back in the file system, packing them one after the other, and I would lose the fragmentation that I had deliberately created by giving Windows all those security updates for, on an old version of Windows specifically for the purpose of fragmenting the drive to pieces. Um, so I did make sure that this was going on. I, I should mention that this was by no means a, a super extensive, thorough benchmark. Um, you know, I just did it quickly because when I was using the uh, the free CompuSec utility, I did see a 9% overhead of d- just doing this defrag operation. And as we know, for whatever reason, I got a negative percent overhead with TrueCrypt. I, I have to imagine that it, it was some caching and buffering they're doing that happened 
to favor um, the, the, the fact that I was doing sort of random reads and writes to the drive. The good news is, though, it is not slowing systems down appreciably. That much we know. Right. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to sell my little quickie uh, benchmark of just seeing how long it takes to defrag a drive as being you know, extensive real-world performance. Right. That was just something to give me an idea right. whether this thing was going to be slow, and it sure is not. Well, for one thing, it's much heavier disk access than most programs would ever do. But that's what you wanted yeah. to find out is how it impacts exactly. disk throughput. Exactly. Exactly. Clement listening in Melbourne, Australia, another Melbourneite, Melbourneite found scripts on GRC. No, <gasps> for shame, Mister Anti Script. Hi, yeah. Steve. I'm a longtime listener of Security Now. I use the Firefox No Script plugin to disable scripting while browsing the net. I noticed as I am surfing your net that three to four scripts are currently forbidden from GRC.com and GRCTech.com. I'm curious about this. I thought your website was script-free. Could be some malware hijacking your site. What's the matter, mate? Not to worry, Clement. Um, I have. Uh, uh, I, I have to say, though, I've slipped a little bit into the dark side. Oh, Steve. I, uh, it was a consequence of adding that Google search technology uh, right. to the site. Uh, That's a JavaScript piece. Well, it, it, it is JavaScript, and it uses JavaScript in order to return the results. Right. However, while I was over there in Google land... They sort of said, hey, you know, if you like search, how about our web analytics technology? Right. And so and Mark Thompson, my buddy at Analog X, had been raving about it. I love it. Yeah. Yes. The amazing amount of information that you're able that a webmaster is able to obtain about where people are coming from, what searches they're using, what search tools they're using, you know, who's, you know, how long people are staying, how many people apparently go there and immediately leave, blah, 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 blah. So I thought, well, let me just sort of try this. And to do web analytics requires that you put this little, uh, actually two little JavaScript instances at the bottom of each of your pages. So that's what's going on. I don't, I don't think I'm going to keep it because I can live without it, and I do still sort of feel like eh, this is kind of icky, especially to be like, you know, as exactly as Clement has seen, to be throwing up warnings because right. he's using no script all the time. That's right. just – I don't like that. And here I went to all the trouble <laughs> of doing an absolutely 100% script-free CSS-based menuing system. So, yeah, I think that's just temporary. I'm going to give it a few more – Maybe another week or two. And I mean, I looked at it today. I look at it every couple of days and go, oh, okay, that's interesting. But it's like, I don't really care. So it'll, it'll be leaving soon. You know, that's, it just really underscores how difficult it is to, uh, to, to ha- use a script-free web. Yes, Leo, we're losing the battle. <laughs> Both for users and for webmasters. I use uh, Google Analytics. And while I don't have the same um, fear of scripts that you do, and I you know... It, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're just everywhere. I mean, you're you're probably one site in literally a million that doesn't use them. Yeah. Um, so everybody does. Uh, and yeah, if you don't like them, NoScript is a really good Firefox plugin that just alerts you and will disable scripts whenever you say, you know, I don't trust this site. On the other hand, you're probably going to enable them in most cases. Certainly if you use twit.tv, there's scripts for the Flash. There's scripts for analytics. There's all sorts of scripts on there. All benign. Now, there is a larger issue with Google Analytics which I think is worth addressing, which is you're sending Google information about every single person who visits your site, including, you know, the things that any log keeps track of, like IP address, browser used, and so forth. I'm not sure we want to share that information with Google, and certainly we're not telling our users we're doing that. 
Good point. So that's I think that's an even larger issue. And, you know, I use Google Analytics because it's free. It's really excellent analytics. They, they bought Urchin. Um, if you are willing to spend money, you can host it locally. And there's certainly many stats packages you could host locally uh, that, that don't, in fact, uh, put any JavaScript on the page. They just analyze the log. Yep. And that's probably, you know, you won't get heat maps and things like that. For that, you need JavaScript. So I oh I mean and they they've got some oh, just great. oh have you seen that deal where you where you can do the overlay yeah, where you, you that's the heat map you, yeah you hover your mouse over your own links on your yeah. own page and it shows you right. oh my goodness you can see where people click where they linger what they're looking at it's and that's amazing. really useful for for understanding how people use your site what you what they like what they don't like what they never use uh, but that requires JavaScript because something has to follow their mouse around. Yep, and uh, that's the problem. I mean, that that you cannot get out of the logs. You can only get what page they're on and for how long. Uh, you know, the refers, things like that. And I don't, I don't, I don't even have logging on most of the time. You don't. Your server is not logging. Nope. Really. Nope. See, that's nope, good. I, I think that's great. I mean, that really is. You know, ninety nine point again. You're one in a million. Almost everybody. I mean, if you just run Apache out of the box or IIS out of the box, it logs every visitor. That's just yep. normal. I mean, I don't pay attention to the log, but if there's a problem, you can go back and say, well, what was going on? Yep. In fact, on our on our privacy page, I mentioned that I, we, I do not have logging That's because right. I feel it's part of what I want, the privacy I want GRC's visitors to have. And that, you know, if if during like weird times, I may turn it on for forensic purposes briefly to find out if something's wrong or what's going on. But in general, and then I delete them afterwards. Right. But in general, I mean, you know, I don't have logging on right now. I, I never do. Excellent. You are you are a rare man, Mr. Steve Gibson. But we knew that for a long time. Coleman Burke in San Francisco reminds us of the Heise Security Offline Update. Almost uh, 10 episodes back, number 124, your fantastic tip of the week went to someone who clued you in about the uh, Heise stuff, which I tried and found to be a godsend. Since that episode, though, you and Leo have several times referred to the pain of doing a Windows reinstall, in particular the repeated patching and rebooting that entails. Have you forgotten about Heise or found some reason not to use it after praising it so highly? I've done a couple of XP reinstalls on various machines since learning about Heise and found it avoided the headaches you guys seem to continue to grouse about except for one trivial Windows update for the most recent uh, of patches that Heise didn't include. I, in my defense, I haven't done a reinstall since we talked about it, um, but I did when I had forgotten about it. I, I probably wouldn't use it just because I forgot. And Leo, I think mostly we just enjoy grousing yeah. about, all, <laughs> about, about the 90-plus patches that right. XP now needs, even after Service Pack 2 and wondering where Service Pack 3 is. I did want to affirm for everyone that you know it is a really good system. Um, what happens for me is I'm not installing XP often enough and normally right. I'm never really planning to do it, uh, that it's worth going through all the trouble. Also, I've got so many machines around here, I'm never doing it on like my main machine. So I don't mind really if it just sits over there and sucks things down and grinds along and does whatever it's going to do and does reboots and things. So so for for somebody who is you know, in the XP reinstall business, Oh my goodness, this thing really makes sense. And again, I'll remind people you can find it just by Googling the phrase offline hyphen update. If you, if you Google offline hyphen update, the first few links that come up, definitely the first link at the moment, um, will be the page that will, that will take you to these guys. And I mean, it is, 
it is absolutely terrific. And I and I wanted to bring this up again to say that I've had a bunch of positive feedback from people who we turned on to this 10 episodes ago and who are saying, oh, this thing really works. I mean, they've looked at the scripts. They've looked at the way it builds these ISOs, and they've been very, very impressed with it. So I wanted to remind people about it. Uh, it will be less critical once SP3 comes out for Windows XP. Speaking of which, Leo, I just saw something uh, today earlier about Microsoft getting ready to end XP. Well, they've said for a long time that, Jan- that June 30th they would stop selling it. Oh, oh okay. So, uh, and, and there has been quite a bit of protesting about that. I don't God. know what the latest is. I'll have to look uh, real quickly and see. But, um, yeah, they, they've been planning on phasing that out. I mean, they, don't, they, don't, they want you to buy Vista. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, it makes sense to buy Vista. It's just the, if it's on a new machine, it makes sense, I guess. It, does, it doesn't make sense yet, Leo. It needs another three or four years. <laughs> <laughs> when it, you know, they, just broke, they just broke it with Service Pack 1. I Vista know, Service Pack I 1 know. broke a whole bunch of things. It's like, oh, this is really not ready yet. Well, you know, uh, you know that's, I, I, don't, I try to stay away from Windows whenever I can. And, <laughs> You know, frankly, that's one of the reasons. Um, you know, it's 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 old and it's showing its uh, it's showing its age. You, it's very you know hard that to... I I run Skype on my little Mac and and I turn it on once a week to talk with you. And I was doing it today and I and I was sort of browsing around. I thought, oh, I haven't updated Skype for a while, so I checked and oh, I was way behind, yeah, so I updated yeah. Skype. And I just sort of sort of felt peaceful. It's like, oh, this is just sort of peaceful <laughs> to a use peaceful a Mac. Computer. It's uh, you know, you're not you're not like holding back. on to the edge of your desk thinking, oh, God, what's <laughs> going to happen? Oh my God! Windows 2000 was like that. It was a peaceful operating system. That's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at Windows 2000 there, right now. Leo. Just works and works and works. I think yep. really, if 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 I could say anything to Microsoft, I would say just keep something like probably Windows 2000 to be the best choice. Just keep that around. Off, you know, offer it for a hundred bucks, fifty bucks. Just say we'll keep it up to date. We'll keep it patched. You know, it's not going to be high priority. You're not going to see any new features. But just for people who want a solid, not changing, uh, and, and secure operating system, we'd like to you know just give you that kind of you know Windows Lite or something or Windows Business or something. I don't know yeah. why they don't do that. Well, it's because, as you say, ultimately, well, okay, in fairness to them, Windows is got so many problems that keeping it current is a, it's a full-time job. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody well, no, you have to, to, you would say this, look, this isn't going to run anything past 2000. You know, it's for those of you who are still running all your old software and are, are not planning to upgrade. But the problem yeah. is they don't, they don't, they no longer ship patches. Well, exactly. And unfortunately, it still needs them because they've got so yeah. much legacy code that they're still finding problems yeah. in that, you know, they would have to. And, and again, in, in fairness to Microsoft, having that many versions all in different states. I mean, I don't know how they do it as is. I mean, it is it was such a huge task that they have, but it's a problem that they, that they brought on themselves, of course, you know, by by needing all those patches difficult you know that's why i think in the long run for a lot of users a unix system is probably a very good idea but the, but it's not good for novice users but then is windows good for novice users anymore i don't know well and you know mac uh, i guess apple really uh took some heat for this most recent mac 
uh, OS upgrade. A lot of people thinking, eh, I don't know what I paid my money for. They're, you know, any as with I guess anybody, they're moving away from simplicity and the idea of a. That's what I'm saying is we need a simple kind of no frills operating system for people who just want to surf, get email. Uh, and, and the Mac is get you know, as with, it always happens with age. It accretes more and more features, more bells and whistles, and that means more bugs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only reason Windows is worse right now is because it's older. <laughs> if, you know, it, OS ten in 10 years is going to be the same creaky machine Windows is, and it'll need to, at some point, you have to cut it off and say, we're going to start completely from scratch. Yep. Uh, let's see. Martin in Calgary, Alberta, Canada needs the magic password. Hi, Steve. Oh, you're not going to believe this one, Leo. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> what is the one? What is Pee-wee's, uh, Pee-wee's magic uh, password? Oh, that's goodness. What, that's what he, he says. Hi, Steve. I recently bought a new Toshiba laptop. It came with a 200 gigabyte Toshiba hard drive. During last weekend, my kids played with a laptop, created a system and a hard drive password using the BIOS. They can't remember it. In order to reset the BIOS password... I knew how to do it, so I removed the battery from the motherboard and put it back. Bingo. Well, that's good. You can get in BIOS. However, the hard drive password still there. In order to use the new laptop, I pulled the 20-gig hard drive from my fried Xbox 360, put it into the laptop. The partitions were a little weird, but it worked. Now, how can I reset the password on the hard drive? There's no jumper or nothing. He's uh, got one of them new... Uh, Incri- hardware encryption drives, right? Well, no, he probably may or just use that ID ta- lock. It's yeah. I mean, the the Atapi spec has had a a password facility uh-huh. which many laptop BIOSes know about. This is what you know the so called hard drive password. It's not encrypted. It's just locked. And here's the bad news: there's no way to unlock it. None? There's no no. There's no jumper. Now, the only thing you could do is if you had in the, literally a subpoena or you were the NSA or government clearance or something, Toshiba certainly has the ability at the factory to remove the password because it's just a password that the drive has on it that you would need somehow to remove. The problem is the spec, the ATA password management spec does have a way to remove the password from the drive. The only way it will agree to do so is if it first wipes the drive. So you are able to force the removal of the password at the cost of all the drive's data, which really makes sense. I mean, that's, that's a secure solution. So it doesn't, you're not just having to throw the drive out the window and say, well, uh, my kids put a password on the drive that they no longer. You got to keep your passwords or your your kids away from the BIOS. I think in your laptop in the future. Yeah. Um, uh, but so you 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 are able to prevent completely scrapping the drive, but you'd have to have a utility. Perhaps Toshiba makes it. I'm not even aware of one that's you know wandering around that gives you the option of doing this, of removing the password at the cost of wiping the drive. But all drives will unlock themselves under command after they have successfully wiped their entire contents clean. But so that's there's good. No, so at least there's you can, no jumper. At least you can use your computer again. And he says yeah. he just bought it, so maybe he doesn't have a lot of data on it. Yet. That that's, sounds likely. Although I don't know where I would tell him to go get such a utility. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I could I could write one, but I never have. Right. So, 
It must be out there somewhere. What if, sure it were, what if it were one of those new hardware encrypted drives? Would there be any recourse? Um, no, because the drive would not have the password. Um, but I'm sure you could do the same thing. There is the same facility of saying, unlock the drive, just, you know, wipe yourself first. <sighs> Rene Kanigi, which <laughs> sounds like a Peter Sellers name. He's at NATO, NATO HQ in the Netherlands, so I'm not going to make fun of him anymore. Has solved the unshredding problem. I heard you guys mention the deal with shredders and scanners plus computers being able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We talked about the fact that you could, <laughs> there are machines that will reassemble cross-cut shredded documents automatically. Yep. At NATO HQ here in the Netherlands, our papers get shredded as well. But in the same water a machine, water is added Oh, what a good idea. Creating Isn't an, that neat? Yeah, an irreversible and definitely unscannable pulp. Just add water, you should be good. And then you can make paper mache animals afterwards. <laughs> so I just love that. It's like, okay, the shredder machines have, have been it. upgraded <laughs> to compensate for this problem. You know, you know, they don't have a water reservoir. And so you shred the paper and it, it turns it into pulp. Wow. It's like... Just big goo pile it's at the bottom magical. of the pile. Yep. That's very cool. Brian W. Uh, in Montreal has uh, the segue into next week's, a perfect segue into next week's episode, which we will mention in a moment. But first, I do want to mention our good friends at Astaro, the Astaro Security Gateway sponsor of Security Now for now three years. And rightly so. Astaro is all about security. If you're a business... You need to know about Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. The Astaro Security Gateway is a small appliance, about the size of a router, a little bit bigger. I have one, and I just love it because it does so much more. I mean, it's not, you know, it, routing, this thing's a security gateway. It's a complete set of, uh, of security technologies, some of them open source, some of them commercial. They do everything you'd expect. Three antiviruses, two for email, one for the web. Anti-spyware, complete control over what your users are doing, including instant messaging, peer-to-peer, content filtering. Of course, you get the network protection, you know, you expect from a, a UTM. You get your firewall, your remote, a- remote access, your intrusion protection. The remote access, by the way, now uses SSL. So you could use IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, and PPTP tunneling with SSL, making it very easy. And what a great range of solutions. Built-in encryption, transparent to your users using open pgp or smime i mean just it goes on and on this thing is so cool all of this in one you know box not only that as your enterprise goes so grows so can astaro because you can uh, you can connect up to uh, 10 astaro security gateways without any additional load balancing so that you get you you can really grow i mean that i don't know how many seats that can handle but it's a lot Look, find out for yourself. Get a free demo unit by calling Astaro, 877-427-8276. That's 1-877-427-8276 or 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. Product of the year in CRN Magazine, SC Magazine, PC Magazine. I mean, these guys really make the best thing out there. 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. And if you're a non-commercial user, take a look at astaro.com slash security now. For free home user licenses for the complete Astaro software system, you could put it on your own a beige box and make your own security gateway. You know, I, I think that's really for a home user the best possible security. So much better than all these other uh, you know 
silly little software solutions. This is this is hardcore bulletproof protection. We thank him so much for being a part of Security Now. Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. All right, you ready for the last question? For the Segway question. Brian W. in Montreal. Computer World Magazine just published a lengthy article reviewing several, quote, secure USB drives from major vendors. Most of what they said has already been covered better on your podcast. But some of the security features and hoops these drives use are pretty funny in a sad sort of way, like this nugget, quote, Kingston refused to say what encryption mode the device runs in, citing that it was proprietary information. Sigh. In the end, they came to the same conclusion as you and recommended Iron Key, although they failed to point out you could do better than almost all of these devices just by using any old USB key and a free copy of TrueCrypt. Right. Um, it's funny. I uh, took my car in to be dig for its like major service last week, and I literally have I have a little four gig. I actually think it is Kingston. It, Kingston has a cool little super mini uh oh, usb yeah. uh gizmo yeah um it's got a little weird sort of slider on the outside and it, it immediately i thought well this isn't going to last long and you know the the detents wore down in about four days because of course i couldn't keep <laughs> from kept, sliding it back you and keep forth sliding it, don't you? i knew it <laughs> yeah i have the same one on my keychain <laughs> i just get <laughs> yeah no it's just too fun to play with you know anyway so and then the little thing the little slider cracked in half and and it's gone um leaving just the sort of a little exposed usb uh you know ui uh electrical interface on the front but that that it doesn't matter it wasn't being hidden very well anyway by that thing but the point is that I, i had to leave my keys with the service folks to to have the car for the day and i thought wow you know i mean now i'm really glad that there is nothing on this in the clear, I've got, you know, there is TrueCrypt XE and TrueCrypt Sys and a file, uh, I can't remember what I called it, blob, I think, .ct. And so, you know, the, 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 there's no danger from turning my keys with this little USB dongle over to the uh, text. Because, you know, you have to think, what a tasty thing for any, you know, for anyone to see is like, you know, a USB dongle on someone's keychain. It's like, wow, I can just plug it into my little laptop here and see what these, if he's got any good files I need. <laughs> so, you know, USB you definitely, definitely, you definitely want that cryptid for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, next week we will have the founder of Iron Key as our guest to talk about uh, his hardware's encryption solution and what makes it he thinks the best there is well that'll be fun we'll talk about iron key and why it work how it works and why it uh, why it's a good idea or not yep. on security now steve uh, everybody knows that the place to go for great free software is grc.com including your new updated wismo with a special Turn off zero wireless config feature. Yep, the new WAN lock command. WAN lock. You're good at naming stuff. WAN lock. <laughs> you should. You could have worked in advertising. <laughs> Spin right. WAN lock. Wismo. Disc the, decombobulator. Disc decombobulator. Shoot the messenger. Unplug and pray. Yep. <laughs> They're all there for free. And of course, Spin right, which is the world's greatest must-have disk maintenance and recovery utility. GRC.com. We'll also put 16 kilobit versions of the show there. Uh, Steve does uh, gets transcripts made, which is really handy for people who want to follow along as they uh, listen or want to share the information with others because we encourage you to do that as well. Uh, GRC.com. Now with a new script-free menuing system. 
<laughs> Google Actually, Analytics included without charge. Um, I'm uh, I'm in the process of nailing down some loose ends from some research that I had done. Uh, actually, it was the summer of 06. The menuing system was one. The There's another new feature coming to GRC shortly, which is going to be a blockbuster. Ah. Um, I'm very excited about it, and it's going to be right up the alley of our Security Now listeners. So we will certainly be doing an episode about some major revelations that uh, have been uncovered as a consequence of this research. And it'll be a new Basically, a new feature, not unlike Shields Up, which uh, will greet people who come to GRC. So we'll be talking about it within a few weeks. Excellent. Thank you, Steve Gibson. Talk to you soon, Leo. Bye-bye. Security now.